some of the best things I will say is like the Black Lives Matter thing, social justice is important. Equal justice is important. Equal representation is important. Good law enforcement is important, right? And Absolutely. to me, and I tell everybody on this camera, every time this topic comes up, even when it was about defunding the police or reallocating police to give them better training, right? For me, the best type of law enforcement is a good agent. Hey everybody, welcome back to this week's episode of the Never Settle Mindcast. I'm here with a good friend of mine, Laura Worm. Uh, you'll see right away, she's a very special person, uh, a woman business owner, third generation San Diego native and food and beverage entrepreneur. And before that, uh, she started a professional career as a homicide prosecutor with the Department of Justice in the District of Columbia back in Washington, D.C., before transitioning as assistant U.S. attorney to San Diego to prosecute major narcotics crimes in San Diego, where I met her. And, you know, her newest adventure that she's embraced, <laughs> Bivouac Cider Works, she launched it. She's the owner, operator, co-founder. They won the best restaurant, uh, best new brewery. What else am I leaving out? Best cider. Best cider, probably important one. Yeah. Craft cider others. company. Yeah. A few <laughs> others. Um, but look, the story tells itself. Without any further ado, I'm happy to introduce Laura. How are you? Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Nice to see you. Good to be seen. Thanks for mm -hmm. coming on. You good? I'm good. Awesome. It's hot out there today. It's very hot, like 100 degrees. Yeah, it's way too much for me. So why don't we start? I think the easiest way is a San Diego native is such a rare thing. That is true. Third generation. How'd you leave San Diego and smart enough to find your way back? Because most people don't do that. They either leave or they're like me and they're transplant. Where are you from originally? San Francisco. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I'm born and raised in San Diego, and um, I left when I was about 17. Moved to Australia for a little bit and then um, went to college at Long Beach State. And then law school in Washington, D.C., and I spent a decade in D.C. And um, I guess I always kind of imagined that I would come back to San Diego, but I wasn't quite sure, or maybe at least to California, um, but wasn't sure how I would get here. And then um, I got into a very bad accident um, about six years ago. I broke my back. Mm -hmm. And I came back to San Diego to rehab, and my parents were sort of like, you've been in D.C. long enough. Why don't you move back? And so I was like, my career out there is pretty good. I think I probably should stay. And I met with some people here at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I was like, I'm not ready. So I went back to D.C., um, and I said, I'm going to give myself a year there. And if I don't get the case of a lifetime or, you know, get into a relationship or something out there that would keep me in D.C. for the rest of my life, I'll move to San Diego and build a life here. And um, so I went back to D.C. I got the case of a lifetime. Oh. Um, and that's a long story we can get into if you feel yeah, like it. I want we to don't have case, to. But, uh, no. Case got of, the case of a lifetime. Tell me. Super long story short. Um, the suspect in that case ended up killing himself and so that ended my investigation and I thought that was probably a sign so I applied to the U.S. Attorney's Office here and moved back to San Diego about five, six years ago now. Wow that's a very nice recap of a busy career. <laughs> um, that case of a lifetime was it a homicide case? It was a homicide case missing eight-year-old girl and it was a 
fascinating, interesting case. It was on Nancy Grace and the front page of the Washington Post and um, like the most thrilling investigation that I'd been involved in. And I'd been involved in a lot of really good investigations. It was really incredible. Um, worked with the FBI, missing and exploited children and um, a few jurisdictions, D.C. and Maryland and um, D.C. police. And um, you want me to just recap the case? I mean, here it's, we are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, this, and I'll interject because just like there's different levels of prosecutors um, and defense attorneys, there's one like position, which is a, a real homicide prosecutor or a serious violent crimes prosecutor that I think people in the criminal justice system respect in my experience, not because you're sitting in my chair, because <laughs> you have a tangible victim, right? You have someone who's dead, right? Especially when it's a kid. Before I was a parent, that's always been sensitive. Um, but then you have families and you have fallout. And how I interpret that having not been a homicide prosecutor, right? And I would never tell you how to prosecute a homicide case. I, that's not the way I practice. You know that. But it's one of those things where you're able to relate with me and vice versa because your case is human, where a lot of the cases we deal with here and other places are that human element isn't necessarily there. There's not that identifiable victim on behalf of the government when you're dealing with drugs, right? Yeah, I... I mean, maybe I should go back one step further, but I, I will say, like, as a homicide prosecutor, there's no um, controversy about your job. Everyone agrees that murder is bad. Yeah. Everyone agrees that murder is wrong. Everyone agrees that we need the police to investigate murders. Yep. Everyone agrees we need prosecutors to prosecute murders. Like, even when I was investigating homicides and I would interview witnesses or defendants or whatever in prison, in jail, ha people that did not want to cooperate with the police or cooperate with the government, even they believed that I should be doing my job. And I remember having a lot of conversations um, with I, just one guy sticks out of my head, but um, on a totally unrelated case, he was a guy in prison. He was a victim of a stabbing in prison. Somebody stabbed him in the head. He had been prosecuted for murder and he was my victim. Mm. And so I spent like a lot of time interviewing him. And when he first came in, he was like, of course, not wanting to talk to me. Right. He's like, I ain't no snitch. Yeah. Um, but as I sat there in the room with him for a long time, me and my detective, I was like, you know, we investigate murders. If your daughter was murdered, would you want us to, would you call the police? He was like, yes. And I was like, would you want us to investigate that? He was like, yes. I'm like, okay. So even though he was a defendant, had been convicted of murder, was in prison, traditionally would hate the police and the prosecutors, we ended up having like a mutual respect for each other because he knew that I had to do my job and he had to do his job. Um, I will tell you fast forward to my career here in San Diego. Yeah. And I also had some trouble with that, you know, drugs. And I was dealing with major cartels and wiretap investigations and stuff here in San Diego. And that's super interesting. And I think also same thing. You know what? When you're a drug dealer and you're trafficking like massive amounts of drugs and you get caught, that's part of the game, yeah. right? 
And those guys mostly get it. Yeah, they get it. They're not mad at you, right? I've never, everybody's like, oh, you're a prosecutor. Were you scared for your life? I was like, no, because that's part of the game. They know that's assuming the risk, right? That's part of the job. Um, However, when you're dealing with border bus cases, when you're dealing with immigration cases, when you're dealing with, like you said, uh, no victim, again, wherever you come on the political side and calling it a victimless crime, of course, drugs have victims immigration has victims whatever but but really no true victim like yeah, a homicide right yeah. yeah um it it's not as clear the role that the police play it's not as clear the role that the prosecutor plays and for me coming from homicide in Washington DC having an 8 year old missing you know dead girl yeah and then having somebody that ran drugs over the border maybe one time that's a real different case night and day right and and so so i i completely understand you know again wherever you come on the political side or whatever your personal beliefs are i completely understand the difference between the two and that was a challenge for me even yeah and and you know i always want to make sure that i'm being honest and transparent and fair interviews anything i post in a podcast and You'll never hear me say that methamphetamine's good or cocaine's good or heroin's good. I see firsthand the devastation that happens on these communities. But what we're talking about in our world of criminal justice and federal prosecutions is an identifiable victim. And occasionally we have those where we have controlled buys of now we're doing a lot of the fentanyl task force and we're able to trace and we can see the controlled buy that was distributed, that was dirty, that led to a victim who's now Somebody deceased. Died. And then right. we have the homicide prong back in there. Right. But when it's just sort of a bulk load, right, 38 kilos of methamphetamine in a gas tank, we don't necessarily always know where it's going. We don't know who the end user was going to be, who they were going to burn, what job they were going to lose, whose house they're going to break into for the next fix. Right. You know what I mean? It becomes right. those are real consequences, but you can't tie that to this load. And that's what we mean about sort of identifiable victims, right? I remember I was interviewing a guy a few years ago here in San Diego in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And um, he was charged with a 20-year mandatory minimum. Okay. Whatever his drug crime was, he had priors. And so we filed papers on him, 20-year mandatory minimum. And he had come in to cooperate. It didn't work out. And and I was I remember being there with the detectives and, you know, Again, I kind of had a reputation, I would say, among law enforcement in this office as being more liberal or more sort of less hard charging mm-hmm. in these cases. And and I think, and it's not because I don't believe in law and order, I think it's because I came from murder and yeah. this was drugs. So it was different to me. Um, but I remember telling the guy like, you know, I'm real sorry, but we're we're gonna have to recommend 20 years, and that was there was just nothing nothing I was I could do about it. There's nothing the judge could do about it, and there's nothing the defense attorney could do about it. And I was like, you know, I'm sorry, you're gonna go to prison for 20 years. And he looked at me and was like, 20 years? That's too much. He was like, I dealt drugs. I didn't kill anybody. And I was like, well, I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was just like, I I actually agree with you. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. and and the and the law enforcement guys kind of looked at him and they were like, she does agree with you. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, they already knew that's that was my perspective. And, and, you know, that's a that's a tough part of doing federal drug crimes. No, a- absolutely. And we have 
we're not the legislature. We're not the sentencing commission. We don't make those right enhancements or you know the priors. We didn't give them the prior. Right. Um, but it's one of those things where the rigidity of federal court sets in when you have a mandatory minimum and you're not safety valve eligible because you have that prior. You're right. not first step act eligible, and you've it's gone to the point where they've enhanced you. Yeah. And they filed the prior drug trafficking to 20 and, years, and you can't get underneath it. Like, And don't get me wrong. I didn't feel bad for him, right? He put himself in that position. 100%. Right? And I don't think even the defense attorney was, you know, there was there was no arguing going on. It just kind of was the facts where we were. and But, but you know, that's it's rigid, like you it's said. It's a harsh reality, yeah. you know? And it's not like on the defense side of things. There's no lawyer that could tell that family whatever they want to hear, pay me X amount of money to get rid of that because there's certain things is I could do my job to the best of the ability. I can't unless your office is going to retract that indictment and file a superseding charge without the enhancement. Nothing I can't do anything can about do. that charge. I can't do anything about your sentencing exposure. Right. And guess what? Neither can the judge because of the mandatories that apply. So right. it's, you know, it, it's one of those times where that that would actually have stuck with me, too, because we hear it's too much time a lot, you know, but that's succinctly put like the law is the law. But you, you didn't kill anybody. But you also sort of knew what you're doing. Well, at that level, say you assume the risk. Yeah, right. it's not you're not doing that. To be clear, your office, all the hundreds of thousands of cases have handled with that office and drug crime specifically, you guys don't file that, that doubling right. enhancement. It's right. very rare, right. and it's usually given the opportunity you can resolve it without the enhancement and if it's pushed past that limit. So it's not as if you guys start out the gate with that. So, right. you know, I can read between the lines having not handled that case. I It didn't start out that way, and there was an opportunity for it not to go that way. But once it's there and you've played ball, you assume the risk, and those are the consequences. That's so, right. but touching on you for a second because you're the guest liberal i don't know if it's appropriate right i, I think personally i think it's reasonable oh, and i was just gonna say that like how i describe myself is not somewhere political i always say i'm an excessive reasonable like <laughs> like that is i am reasonable uh, in all cases and i found it to be that way as a person and as an adversary in that role, it was one of those things that your reputation, which we can jump ahead in my mind, I was going to get to this in a little bit, but bring it out now, you know, you became and earned a reputation in the community as someone coming from out of the district. And that's how, you know, our mutual friend, Jeremy, you guys bonded over that too, because we can sort of identify lawyers with experience, that are out of district because they have perspective. Right. They've handled other cases elsewhere. It's not this, this practice here is very unique amongst the federal circuits because of the high activity and the number of border crimes that we have, right? right? And so like that's never, should have never been taken as a knock by you. Uh, it's been nothing but praise on in the defense community for someone like you coming in and understanding like, okay, but what really is the case worth? Not right. because everyone else did it this way. Right. Right. Well, and you know what? I super appreciate that. And um, I always used to call you guys my like secret lunch club. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because like we had good taste yeah. you know? <laughs> in food for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, prosecutors and defense attorneys are not all that friendly here in this district. And to be honest, they were not all that friendly with each other in D.C. either. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a secret group of defense attorney friends there. Yeah. Um, because. You know, I I believe in reasonableness. I believe in civility, and I think that 
I think criminal justice for me is best served when everyone is reasonable. Yeah. And the reason that I, I so loved my job and we can get into this, but like I wanted to be a prosecutor since I was five years old. And literally when I was five years old, I said, I want to be a criminal prosecutor. And um, I ended up doing that. And the, the dream job, the absolute apex, you know, moment of prosecution or being a lawyer is being a homicide prosecutor in Washington, D.C. There is no better job as a lawyer, full stop, period, no better job. And I, I just doing that job and and coming at it from a place of justice from a place of reasonableness from a place of understanding the full spectrum of human emotion and um you know looking at the real aims of punishment not to be so law schooly about it but like yeah. you know truly looking at being able to consider mitigating circumstances being able to consider rehabilitation being able to um, look at people as humans being able to sit across from a man who's been convicted of murder who then became my victim and my star witness in a case yeah. and needing to form a bond with him um, and having the opportunity to do that. I think, um, you know, the criminal justice system is best served coming from a place of reasonableness and being friendly and civil to the other side. And, you know, uh, coming all of the Black Lives Matter and all of the stuff that's going on with the police in the country right now, um, it's it's really interesting having been in that from a law law enforcement and like cr- from be- living in the criminal justice system, um, and now I'm I'm out of it, yeah. you know. But when people talk about it, when I hear people having opinions about the police or having opinion, opinions about prosecutors or having opinions about um, being black in the criminal justice system, all these type of things, I, I feel like I know it in my soul. And like I lived yeah. it, and so I have some like very deep thoughts and very deep connections to it. Um, so uh, I, I think you know reasonableness on both sides is really important. One hundred percent. And I mean, you and I—you could pick up a case now, right? You could prosecute a case right now. I could be on the other side, and we could disagree, and I could fight like hell for my client and file motions and we could have it out like cats and dogs in that courtroom right over a motion hearing and at the end of that hearing we could go grab a beer yeah <laughs> a cider uh, a cider <laughs> right we right. go grab some bivouac cider nice and chilly <laughs> nice and cold but it's one of those things where it's a mutual respect for a fellow advocate we're coming at from two different places of view and two different outcomes of who we serve, right? And my clients hire me to do a job, but it's not personal. It doesn't have to be personal attacks. It doesn't have to be anything more than the case, right? And I think that's where a lot of the lines get sort of blurry or screwed up is there's this sort of animus amongst, you know, like a federal defender's organization and a prosecutor where we have to not like them and they have to not like us and the, the they don't serve themselves uh, justice because they sort of take on some roles, for example, in the defense community. Sure. I don't think you're best served your defendant in that respect, right? No, you can get more bees with honey than vinegar. That's and right. so when you come in there and you piss in the wind and you piss everybody off, you're not <laughs> helping your client right. and you're not gaining respect either. There's a right way and a wrong way about doing it. And there's not sacrificing advocacy isn't an option, but you're more effective with certain ways. And I think... Some of the best things I will say is like the Black Lives Matter thing, social justice is important. Equal justice is important. Equal representation is important. 
good law enforcement is important, right? And Absolutely. to me, and I tell everybody on this camera, every time this topic comes up, even when it was about defunding the police or reallocating police to give them better training, right? For me, the best type of law enforcement is a good agent because it makes Absolutely. my job easier, right? Because it cuts out a lot of the legal issues I got to look in and doubt about a case, which I'm it's my job to do. I'm a doubting Thomas, and we got to make sure that there's constitutionally admissible evidence and things are good. But when you have an agent who's done the work the right way, then we can get to the meat and potatoes of, of working out that case, wherever it's going to go. So most defense lawyers love and respect when they have great team great of thoughts. agents across them. It sure. makes our challenge harder and better, but it gets rid of all those nonsense issues that don't have a place in the justice system, right? That's more of like the winning system where there's like corners being cut on both sides. And there's unclean hands on both sides of the bar. I'm never casting aspersions at a prosecutor or an agent unless there's sort of a record for it. But I want good law enforcement. I want good agents. Can we do can they do their job better? Yeah. Can they have more resources? Yeah. Do they need as many assault rifles? Probably not. Can they get away with half the amount and some more psychological treatment to combat the stuff that they deal with on a daily basis, which is real, that I don't deal with, right? I don't walk in on the dead body in the living room floor. Like, that's traumatic. And they need the tools to adjust it to go forward. And I know I went off on a tangent, but the point <laughs> being is, like, I don't come from a place of hating law enforcement. I think everyone thinks and that I do because— most defense attorneys, good defense attorneys that I know— especially that are, I mean, federal defenders or public defenders, um, We in D.C. we used to call them true believers. Mm -hmm. um, but you have true believer prosecutors and true believer defense attorneys. Um, and I do not think the justice system is served by either one of those because no. not all defendants are bad. Not all defendants are guilty. Not all cops are bad. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, good Good, smart, ethical people in every single position is how this system is best served. A hundred percent, hundred percent agree with that. And I think going back to your service as a prosecutor in D.C. and doing homicide and working in that office for a decade, you get sort of that well-rounded experience of being a prosecutor, true victims. I would hope that you're seeing the tip top of the defense community in defending a homicide case because it's so serious. And then you see effective defense work and effective mitigation, which helps you understand the not only the victims you represent, but the people you're prosecuting. So to bring that view serves you better as a prosecutor here. And it was noticeable from our interactions. Well, I appreciate that. No, no, but it was. And it was like, I don't understand some people it's hard for them without that experience that not everyone has it's sometimes it's hard for them to identify that i represent a person that yeah they may have been charged with the crime or they've pled guilty to this and now we're trying to work it up for sentencing to see them other than a last name and a case number and a, a sentencing table i mean so i was a prosecutor for a decade that was my dream job it's all i ever wanted to do and i don't do it anymore mm -hmm. and um a lot of times people are like oh, you're, you know, when I meet people now, they're like, what do you do? I'm like, I own this brewery. And they're like, oh, wow, this is so amazing. You must be so happy you're not a lawyer anymore. And I'm like, no, I loved being a lawyer. Yeah. I miss it every single day. And that is all I ever wanted to be. Um, and I grew up in the food and beverage business. And that is all I never wanted to be. <laughs> and so for people now who are like, oh, my God, this must be your life dream. I'm like, this is my actual 
literal nightmare. <laughs> like owning a restaurant in San Diego is the one thing that I never wanted to do. And being a prosecutor is the only thing I ever wanted to do. Um, I will tell you that the reason that I left, so right, just actually this month is two, my two-year anniversary from leaving yeah. U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, and, you know, what what led to me leaving was a combination of things. One was I had started this business and it kind of was taking off and needed more attention and all those things. Um, but the if but for the other things happening at the same time, I would mm. never have left. Um, and what happened was the administration changed and I was hired under Bush. So I served under Bush and Obama and um, and then when Trump took office, when the administration changed, for me, the job changed. And like certainly being in San Diego, it was different from being in DC just from a, from what the cases were and what my role was. And, you know, and I always tell people like, there's no good violent crime in San Diego for of course people living here, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> but as a prosecutor, I was like, these drug dealers don't even shoot people, you know? Yeah. And so it was like a little bit less exciting or a little bit less meaningful just at, from the baseline what the case is coming in. But I could, I had a good life and like I really enjoyed my job here and I could have stayed there for a long time. But when the administration changed, things changed. Like, palpably and before um you know and this is kind of insider baseball and I don't know <laughs> if I go try to get the job back and I don't get it because of this podcast I might regret it but I'll hire you <laughs> thank you <laughs> I appreciate that you all heard it folks um but we went from the week before having to justify when we were charging a mandatory minimum from to having to justify when we weren't charging a mandatory minimum. And I'm okay with that. Like politics changed and I understood, you know, I'm a, I always had a, I had a review in DC and my supervisor said, Lara always has very strong opinions about her cases, but ultimately does what she's told. And that's like the perfect description of me in every situation. Like you're always going to know how I feel, yeah. but I'm a good soldier. So if this is the job, I'm going to, I'm going to do the job. And I understand that I work for the federal government and you have to stick within certain guidelines. But the thing for me that changed was the, the air in the office and the, the air of the job that we were doing where instead of marching forward to do justice and consider every case individually, which I had really, really, really enjoyed, you know, true prosecutorial discretion for the entirety of my career, I truly felt that I was able to do justice on every single case I ever did, whether that was the maximum sentence or that was dismissing a case. I believe that there was never once in my entire career a case that I did not do what I believed was right. And that is amazing. Yeah. I mean, as, you don't have that as a defense attorney, for sure. No. And and I don't think you have it in any other job. But as a prosecutor, I truly felt that like whatever I felt was the right thing, I was able to do it. And even if like my supervisors, you know, I'd go to them and they'd, I'd be able to advocate my position. And they respected me for having a position. And um, when, when things changed in this office, I remember going to my supervisor at the time and I said, you know, I was trying to ask for a, a lower sentence for someone. 
and I said, you know, this defendant had kind of a bad childhood and had cooperated and had just like listing the mitigating circumstances, which I think is only appropriate to consider in every single case, but certainly in, in that case and, and the, the amount of years that the person was facing was like astronomical. And I was asking to pierce the mandatory minimum. And my supervisor looked at me and said, if a career in prosecution doesn't work out, maybe Federal Defenders is hiring. That's like, let me time out for the viewers. I'll translate. That's the ultimate fuck you, which is misplaced, but go ahead. It's, that's nonsense, but yeah. And at that moment, I was like, I have to leave. I, I was like, I, and I, I've obviously had a look on my face, and, and the supervisor was like, I shouldn't have said that. And I'm like, no, you shouldn't have. Because if my job is not considering mitigating circumstances, if my job is not advocating for what I believe is just, we are not serving the interests of justice. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, I knew, like, this has changed. And this is no longer the job that I love, the job that I had wanted to do since I was five years old. You know, and, and that was super depressing to me. And, you know, ultimately... Again, I'll always do what I'm told. So I, I went forward in with my marching orders. But I just thought, like, that's that's not justice, right? For me, yeah. for me to not be able to advocate what I think is right and wrong. Um, so you know that and a few other things that happened in the office that just really like changed it for me. It just was like not. It's hard to say like prosecuting is fun, right? Yeah, I, I don't want to say that because we're dealing with people's lives and you know, dead people and people going to prison and very serious issues. But like, I always just loved my job, even in the most stressful moments, because yeah. I knew I was doing the right thing. And I felt that I could consider, you know, the fact that um, a defendant was young and black and had grown up with a father in prison and a mom that wasn't home and like had all these sort of terrible circumstances and that I could do better for young black kids than a defense attorney could because I could make all the decisions, right? You, you said the phrase prosecutorial discretion. That's something that defense lawyers never have with charging when to dump a case. And you can be way more effective across the board, right? Totally. Because and like that's to your point before, like who do we want to be prosecutors and cops? People like me. Right. One hundred percent. That's that's what we want. We want people that are smart. We want people that care about the community. We want people that consider mitigating circumstances. We want people that can say, like, yeah, I know you got stopped every single day on your way home from work simply because you were black for no other reason. Like you want somebody who thinks about that to be attracted to the job of prosecutor or cop you don't only want true believers in those roles because then we end up with a skewed criminal justice system and then it doesn't matter defense attorneys it doesn't matter judges like none of that matters because the cops and the prosecutors you know by the time it gets that far you can't do anything about it and so when people are like attacking the police or saying you know you can never be a good prosecutor or something like that mm -hmm. i think that's um really really the wrong thing to be doing in this time. I think we want to be saying we have respect for the criminal justice system. We have respect for cops. We want to we want to pay them more. <laughs> like yeah. not defund them, right? I want to pay them more. I want to give them a better pension because the people that you want attracted to that job, you want them to understand what it means to have social injustice 
and to consider that in their job, you know? No, uh, 100%. And your focus since you were five, it sounds like is doing the right thing, right? And following the commands, you have special ethical duties as a prosecutor because of the power you wield as a prosecutor. You decide, I can't defend a case you don't bring, right? right? Like unless I'm engaged beforehand and we can resolve it before an indictment. But this has not anything to do about me or it has to do with understanding the way the system works. And that power in prosecutorial discretion with the umbrella, overarching umbrella of pursuing justice and doing the right thing is where I think from my perspective, when I see things, um, and I don't see everything because I'm not in the U.S. Attorney's Office, but I touch enough cases and I have a busy enough caseload and a reputation and experience here to know when things are not going as anticipated, if you will, because people are being blinded by something personal or winning. And and it's it's yeah, like... I mean, I never saw that. Like, and maybe it exists. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. Not as much in your office as yeah. other offices, but you know what I mean? Like, For sure. And I hear, you know, a notch on a prosecutor's belt. I never, I mean, never have I been asked by a supervisor or anyone I ever worked with, how many cases have you won? Like, not once in my career. Mm-hmm. So when people say winning, I don't know if that's the thing, but I do think this happens on both sides. You lose sight of the other side right and so the prosecutors or the cops tend to think if you got arrested and you ended up in that situation you probably did it right Mm -hmm. and the defense attorneys think if if you are stopped it was probably a racist stop or a unconstitutional stop or something right like you have they 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 forget that there are exceptions on both sides Mm-hmm. And you you view it from the lens, only the lens that you're looking at it from, and not from the other lens. I actually, um, we can probably talk about cider sometime, but this oh, is no, more we're fun getting the, for We're going to get the cider, <laughs> but I can feel the energy and the passion well, you I still love, have for yeah. law. You know what I mean? Oh, and I do. And so I've got a buddy who's a defense attorney um, here and has picked up some federal cases. And he, he, he didn't come up in the federal system. Um, and so he's calling me for advice all the time. So he finally said he's going to pay me a little bit. And I'm like, cool. I've been yeah. waiting for this. Like, since I left, all I want to do is work for you. Like, I don't want to be a lawyer and hang my shingle and whatever. I just want to work for you and do, like, a little stuff on the side. So call me if you need something. I someone. will. We'll get, but, but we honestly, have some trials that are going to go eventually this COVID yeah, thing to get people. I would love to. But he keeps calling me and saying, like, what should I do? in this motion or something yeah and uh he'll be like i'm gonna make this argument i was like that's ridiculous (laughs) you know and i was like your your argument makes no sense the judge is gonna think it's totally crazy the prosecutor's gonna be like think you're an idiot like why would you even make that argument and he was like what i think you know and it it was so clear to me that prosecutors and defense attorneys think so differently yeah and uh i was like here's how that's gonna go you know, and I told him and he called me the next day and he goes, yeah, my motion was denied as moot. And like they said, I you know had no merit or something. And I, and I was like, cool, that'll be 500 bucks, you know. Yeah. And, and he was like, but I lost. I was like, you get paid if you lose. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But I think he, then he was like, oh, you know, she kind of thinks like a prosecutor and that could be helpful as a defense attorney. And I think the same thing, you know, as prosecutors, 
it's helpful to see the system from the other side. It's helpful. And and again, coming up as a homicide prosecutor in D.C., I've, I've spent more time with defendants probably than you maybe even have because that's all my witnesses or my cooperators or whatever. Like my whole life was interviewing people on the other side. Yeah. And so having spent a lot of time with those people – I have a lot of that perspective, you know, and I, I remember interviewing a kid and he had been, he was busted for like this chain of burglaries um, and he was stealing TVs out of everybody's houses in Capitol Hill in DC. And um, I interviewed him a lot and he admitted to everything, you know, and we were coming up with a, a plea deal, but I was, I was like, well, I'm looking for a new TV for my house. What should I get? And he like gave me advice on, you know, what I should get and what was a good TV and what I was going to be watching and whatever. And I was like, why don't you work, go get a job at Best Buy, yeah. you know? And he was like, I didn't graduate high school and I make way more money stealing TVs and selling them, you know, on the black market than I would ever at Best Buy for minimum wage. And he was like, plus I have a criminal record and I'll never get hired. And I was like, huh, like, yeah, he's, he's super smart. He's articulate. He knows about electronics. He has credibility in the field and he will never get that job. So that's, you know, something I, I took with me that every time you walk down the street and you see somebody like, you don't know what their past is and you don't know what circumstances they've come from. And, and everybody has different opportunities than, than everybody else, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. And there's, that's articulating the collateral consequences that we try to express to a judge about what's really going to happen going forward once the sentence is over, right? Sure. Or once probation's over. And we have, you know, and clarify a comment, winning, when I say that, it's not necessarily to win always to win the trial because you and I both know how few trials we actually get in federal court here with the way things are run with the volume but getting their way right is what I was mean by winning not necessarily winning or losing or or records some there are some old school people that that still have that um, sort of notch on your belt mentality or how much time you've got and there was, there's a story about a hall of fame over there um, that we can talk about after uh, <laughs> that I'm aware of which I think is deserved uh, but I want to transition because it's going to come back around a lot before we wrap this up. But I remember at one of our lunch days when we were there and Jeremy and we were talking and you were telling us about your idea, which is now your baby's born up and running and won all these <laughs> accolades. Right. And you're saying, no, I, 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 this is what I believe in. This is what I think is going to happen. And, you know, we have a huge craft beer scene here, but I, I think like wine's there. Crappy craft cider is going to be the next thing. And no, I'm going to do it. And, I was on board. I was like, yeah. And then we were talking, then we had follow up ones. We were talking about menu selection. Then right. you're going to be having the tasting. And I still thought you were sort of crazy, yeah. um, not for doing it, but because you still were half in the prosecutor's <laughs> office and trying to launch a restaurant. I was business. all in the press. I was all in both. That no, was you a problem. Were, that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah, you were all in on stressful. burning the end, right? Yeah. Burning it on both ends. Yep. And I was like, how in the world? But now, we have Bivouac Cider Works is here. You have the tasting room and tap room with the restaurant in North Park. And we have distribution, San Diego and Orange County. Why cider? How did you decide that? Um, so to your point about whether I'm crazy, I am. And, uh, you know, my I don't know if it's my greatest strength or my greatest weakness. But if I say I'm going to do something, 
I'm going to do it. Yeah. So if I said I'm going to be a prosecutor when I was five, I was always going to be a prosecutor. And like my friends in high school, if I'll see them now, you know, when I was a lawyer, they'd be like, I can't believe you really did that. You know, you always <laughs> said you were going to do that. I'm like, what do you mean? Of course I was going to do it if I said it. Um, and then, you know, the way I got involved in this is um, I had a business partner, now former business partner, uh, who long story short came to me and said I think craft cider is going to be the next thing in San Diego and I'd like you to be my business partner and I was like no thank you I have a job I'm not interested yeah. and you know um, my my family's been in the food and beverage business in San Diego for 65 years I grew up I was a hostess when I was four a dishwasher when I was 10 and you know server when I was 12 and the one thing I learned from all of that experience is that I had no interest in going into the food and beverage business in San Diego. And so <laughs> that's why I went to law school. Um, so I kind of said, no, thank you. No, thank you. And he really pursued me and was and I was like, why do you even want me to be your business partner? And um, finally, and I was like, I don't even think I can have another job. I work for the federal government. He was like, well, why don't you go find out? And so I went to my supervisors at the time and I said, hey, I've got this guy and he wants me to be his business partner. Um, in this craft cider company and they said well what will you be doing I was like I don't know I think I'll be giving him a little bit of marketing advice and like selling cider at the farmer's market on the weekends and they were like how much time will you spend and I was like 10 hours a week max like yeah. absolute max and they were like yeah you can do it I was like okay so I'm like okay they said I can do it what do you want he was like well come, come along for the ride let's see what happens and once I started putting my name on it and once I started telling people craft cider is going to be a thing I like couldn't come back from it and I was like well I, if I'm going to start a company it's going to be a company you know yeah. it's going to be legit and then we started to build a restaurant and I was like well if I'm building a restaurant I'm going to make it the best restaurant in San Diego and you know if we're creating a brand it's going to be like the sickest brand you've ever seen and and just again that is probably a curse I just once my name's on something I've got to be all in and so I found myself working all day at the U.S. Attorney's Office and then all night at the restaurant and working on cider um, and it, it became a little bit too much um, and again all those things happening at the same time the job being a little bit less what it had started as and the company being a little bit bigger than anyone could have possibly anticipated and faster than it and then we could have anticipated and so so craft cider it's cider's got a long history and culture in the u.s it was kind of the original drink here in the united states johnny appleseed was planting apple cider apple trees um and then after prohibition they chopped down all the apple trees and people started drinking beer so it kind of went away but in England, United, uh, Australia, Sweden, Spain, France, they all have long cider cultures. And so as my business partner, he kind of was like a home brewer and made some cider at home. And he was like pitching this idea. And I'm like, yeah, it tastes great. It's naturally gluten-free. Um, it's, a, you know, a beer alternative. And that turned out to be kind of the way things were going as beer alternative. Yeah. Um, cider as a category was growing like 100% year over year. Last summer, White Claw and Hard Kombucha kind of like overtook the whole beer alternative category. And I think White Claw even outsold beer 
period across the country. So I think that was something that nobody could have seen. Um, but I always say like fall is cider season. So, you know, we're, we're seeing an uptick and Southern California is kind of a unique place. San Diego, you know, everybody's like obsessed with health and zero calorie, everything. Um, and so I think cider in the rest of the country is growing exponentially in San Diego. It's a little bit slower than some of the other categories, but beer alternatives as a general category are growing pretty rapidly. So we've seen some great success. Um, we got picked up by a distributor pretty quickly. Um, and we're in about 100 or 200 bars and restaurants in San Diego. Um, we uh, launched cans about a year ago, last October. So the brand's called Bivouac. Yeah. Uh, that means temporary camp. Outdoor action adventure. We're sort of a cider brand, but also a lifestyle brand. You know, kind of that REI, Yeti cooler, Patagonia, um, work hard, play hard, um, adventurous spirit, wanderlust type of people. That's our target customer. Everything that the brand embodies, our hashtag is embrace your, adve- embrace your adventure. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like camping, climbing, hiking, paddleboarding, surfing, whatever we're all about in Southern California. Um, do that and then enjoy it with a cider. Yeah, it, it tastes great. Excuse me. How many... How many different flavors of cider do you have right now? So on tap um, in our tap room in North Park. So we have a beautiful outdoor inspired space in the heart of North Park on 30th um, and like university area. Um, And we have about 10 to 12 of our own ciders on tap at any given time there and kind of experimental R&D stuff all the time. Um, And then out for distribution, we have four styles um, all the time. Three of them are core styles and then one's a rotator. So, um, Albright is our semi-dry, light, almost champagne um, pear and apple combo. San Diego Jam is our most popular by far. It's Delicious. blackberry. Everybody loves it. Um, no matter what you drink, sweet, dry, wine, beer, cider, anything, San Diego Jam is everybody's jam. Um, it's blackberry, apple cider. All of our ciders are about 6% alcohol. Um, and then we've got a strawberry ginger. We had one this spring called Alpine Butterfly. It was botanical with um, anise, citrus peel, basil, thyme, really herb, herbaceous. I like that one. Yeah, that was my, like, one of my favorites. Um, we've got a strawberry ginger. And then this summer we had pineapple. And then launched, actually in our tap room this week, we launched pumpkin. And pumpkin spice, and that's coming out in cans in about a week. So those will be a specialty release, 16-ounce, four-pack cans. Um, Super cute with, like, pumpkins all over them. It's called Cat's Paw. And then we actually are just coming up with a collab. There's um, Cafe Calabria is a coffee shop in North Park. And we're going to use their coffee and make a dirty spice chai. So it'll be, like, coffee, spice chai, cider. And that'll be our winter release. Um, and then we've got kind of all sorts of exciting things on the horizon. Super exciting. So I studied um, beer and brewery science in undergrad at UC Davis. I did not know that. Yeah, Lucky and I you. loved it. Yeah, okay. and so we had like... If you need a job, you can come work for me. Maybe yeah. we can trade like once in a while. That sounds good. <laughs> we had Professor Charlie Banforth, crazy English guy, but he was like one of the flagship... Um, head brewers for Bass Ale, um, and then he helped Fritz Maytag start Anchor Scene, yep. and Ken Grossman start Sierra Nevada, and the dude is like the who's who of like 
brewery and really a pioneer of craft brewers in the U.S., right? Sure. And he comes from Bass and U.K., and he understands all the science behind it. Uh, and I just fell in love. And then a good friend of mine was like the first, he was going there for viticulture and enology for winemaking. And he was actually the first student to be accepted from the undergrad into the graduate program because cool. Davis wasn't doing that. Yep. And so when I heard you were thinking about doing the cider, I, that's where I was going. Cause I was like, Oh, I used to love trying to do these homebrew projects, but now I have kids. I have no time for that. Right. Um, but it's something that is always interests me. And do you get your hand in the like scientific brewery side of it, or is it more like ideas, tasting notes? Yeah, I'm, I'm not the sciencey <laughs> person. Uh, that's why I be- became a lawyer. I'm bad at math <laughs> and science. But um, yeah, I I think I'm pretty. I'm a marketing brain, right? Trial lawyer. Yeah. So my greatest skill is taking information packaging it into a digestible form and feeding it to other people and getting them to do something with that information, right? Yeah. And so for me, I think I, I love food and beverage. I'm, I always say, I, I used to say I was a foodie before I opened a restaurant. Now I don't even like to go out to eat. But, um, you know, I, I, I like alcohol, obviously, and I, I like the possibilities in it. I like pairing. I like, you know, your partner Jeremy we always talk about food and beverage and pairing notes and tasting you know he's super into food and beverage so um I love that and so for example this alpine butterfly that we came up with in the spring I was like gin is the hot thing right now like everybody's getting into gin and floral botanical gin is so interesting and kind of hot and sexy I was like let's make a cider inspired by a floral gin and so I went to our cider makers and I was like, this is what I want. And then I designed the label um, and said, you know, this is what I want the label to look like. And then I showed the cider maker and I was like, make a cider that tastes like this, inspired by gin. And so they took juniper and anise, citrus peel, basil, thyme, and pear apple cider and made it nice and dry and crisp and floral. And I tasted it and it tasted just like the label, <laughs> you know, and I was like, nailed it. This is exactly what I wanted, and it turned out to be wildly popular. Um, so I think I'm I'm interested from a from a creative marketing place and from a um, from a taste place, but then I I don't know how to do it. So I'm like <laughs> somebody else needs to mix it up and make it taste like that. But I know what I'm looking for, you know. Yeah, which is a skill, you know, and then knowing, building the team to successfully execute it. Right. Did you have a gin in mind that you, you, that you were like focusing on? Like, was there a certain gin that was, I'm trying to think, I mean, again, Hendrix, um, that was going to be my guess. Okay. Yeah. They, I mean, they do the floral kind of clean, crisp. My wife loves it. I can't drink gin. I'm allergic to juniper berries. So if I have gin, butterfly, not for you, it's over. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Once you mentioned juniper, I was going to say, but you had it. I did. And did it I kill got, you? No, I didn't, but I got real red and rashy on you my did? arms. And so I was thinking there might be juniper in there. <laughs> That's so, I, I mean, didn't it know is it listed inspired. on the front of the can. Yeah, I didn't read. Okay. I was drinking. <laughs> okay, cool. I was drinking. Lawyers well, don't read. I'm glad it didn't kill you. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Um, but that's funny. The The hit in my house is the jam, San Diego jam. San Diego jam. And it rings true that everyone likes it. So like, I'm a tequila, vodka drinker, and then I have my, you know, my father-in-law... He drinks more like whiskeys, MGDs, 
hard <laughs> stuff. He loved it, right? And then we have like our younger sister and her boyfriend. They have two different palettes. Everyone loved that one. Yeah, I've never met anyone who tasted that San Diego jam and was like, ooh, this is not good. Everybody, it might not be, you don't, not everybody wants to drink six of them, but everybody likes it. Yeah, it's really and good. And I think like from a long-term growth perspective, I mean, we're in BevMo, Total Wines, um, you know, Barron's, local grocery stores and stuff like that. And we're kind of in in talks with Whole Foods. And recently I heard that Costco asked about us. So, um, you know, we're, we're definitely growing and people are noticing. Um, just like Ballast Point had the Sculpin. Yeah. For me, that San Diego jam is, I think, what's going to put us on the map. Because I think it's cool name. All of our ciders are named after knots, like climbing knots, fishing mm-hmm. knots, stuff like that, um, which kind of fits into the whole brand. And um, actually, when we were trying to come up with ways to name the cider, I thought to Ballast Point, all of their beer is named after fish. Yeah. And I was like, what's another thing that fits with our brand that makes sense, that fits that lifestyle, the embrace your adventure, but that we do not have to come up with a name every single time. And I was like, what about knots? And then we sure enough, you know, there's a billion knots and all different forms of every single knot. So it was like this big huge list of names and I was like, this is perfect. And um so see any and then we try to, you know, tie it in um to something meaningful. So we have one called Savoy, which is a popular hotel in London, and that's our English pub style cider. And then San Diego Jam is blackberry, like blackberry jam, but it's mm-hmm. a San Diego Jam knot. That's a popular tuna fishing knot in San Diego. So, you know, every every piece of content on that can, every everything, like I wrote every word. And every single name, every single color, every single, like if you look at the barcode, there's like a, a little rock climber going up the yeah. side. And if you're in our tap room, it's all climbing ropes and decorated with knots. And the brass inlay on the concrete bar is a topography map of Tory Pines and Black's Beach. And the stars on the side of the wall or the... Uh, like the cutouts on the side of the wall or the actual night sky. And so like every single thing about this brand from top to bottom and every word is thought out and meaningful and mostly people ignore it. <laughs> like everybody, the first question everybody asks, how do you pronounce it? Bivouac. And what does it mean? It means temporary camp. Um, but we have that written all over the place and nobody reads it. Well, it, it's curated. And it's thoughtful and it's purposeful. And there's a there's another restaurant group that you know, you and I have talked about them before, who take time with their build-outs to do things like that. And the testament to your attention to detail and thoughtfulness is the fact that people don't notice because it all fits. Right. Right? Most people notice what the hell, right. you know? But when it fits, it's seamless. It's like the best inventions are just something, you don't reinvent the wheel, it's just something that's more convenient and you don't realize it. Everything you're describing... All those images are popping in my head from when we had our holiday dinner there. Right. And then, oh, yeah, that of course that's what it was. And it just like, yeah, and it makes sense right. because you're taking the time to be thoughtful about it. Well, and I'm a little bit obnoxious to most people about this, but I talk about being a prosecutor like every single day of my life, but really being a trial lawyer. Like that is what being a trial lawyer is, right? It's curating information yeah it's taking facts packaging them into digestible information and giving it to people to convince them to do something with it and taking little subtle nuances 
that nobody, like one, attention to detail, right? You take a voluminous case file and you come through it and you find nuggets of information. Um, but two, presenting that in such a way that the jury doesn't even know that you, you know, what just happened to them. Yeah. But at the end, you present to them the only conclusion that they could possibly reach. And that is the one you want them to reach, right? And yep. I know you're a very talented orator. Um, I think, you know, there's lots of lawyers who are not good at that. Um, 100%. <laughs> right? Uh, but coming up in Washington, D.C., the, the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. is the cream of the crop. Um, you know, many of my friends were Supreme Court law clerks. And the the lawyers that I learned from were handled some of the biggest cases ever in history. And they were amazing. And that's what, like, I, I clerked in D.C. Superior Court. And I spent an entire year watching murder and rape trials, like, just hanging on to every single piece of information and watching every every move, every step, every word that came out of somebody's mouth. It's all curated. It's all perfect. It's all pers- purposeful. But it doesn't appear that way. Yeah. You know, and I and I think whether it's marketing and, and brand strategy and whatever – but but again, I have to have a product I believe in, right? So for me, it all comes back to that. If if I didn't think that I had the best cider in San Diego or the best food in San Diego or the best branding for a product, I couldn't sell it because I am all about authenticity and I'm all about, you know, the truth, right? That's yeah. like what my job was, the truth. And so when I walk in somewhere, you know, my my – distribution company always says no one tells Lara no and like it's not because I'm the most like amazing salesperson in the world it's because I have a product that I believe in I have a brand that I believe in and I know how to pitch information for something that I believe in you know yeah and you beautifully describe being a trial lawyer right regardless what side you're on it's all about understanding a very complicated set of facts distilling it down to bite sides pieces of information and a lot of times in the, the moment in trials you're making points that jurors or the casual observer who's not in the weeds doesn't understand why that point's significant and then at the end of the case in closing obviously that's when you have sort of that you know vision board of the pins and the strings tying everything together right. and there's it's like that aha moment for them right because they all think they're following they all think they know where the story's going and they may have a general sense but you know, it's a beautiful transition of your skills that you haven't forgotten or let go into this new space that's going to be, it's already successful and ahead of the curve as far as like distribution and getting it so fast, but it's going to be wildly successful because of believing in a product that's authentic. You don't, if you sell somebody a can and it is garbage, it doesn't taste good or the food's not good or it's the price point's too high for the quality, you're going to phase out of the market. There's plenty of competition, Right. you know, so it's exciting. What about what's in the future? Do you see Bivouac being the start of a cider food and development restaurant brand as like an umbrella? Do you see that being the one and only flagship or is it going to be something that you build and transition back to law? What's coming up? You know, it's I'm I'm very controlled or controlling of my own life. And I have always known exactly what I wanted and always had a goal that I set and a path of how to get there. 
Um, and this is a wild card. This is something that I did not predict. This is something that I did not want in advance. Um, and it's something that I did not anticipate doing. It's funny. I worked for, I was a Bud girl in college and like then I worked for Budweiser and did, and I worked for a Scotch company and, you know, I, I did alcohol marketing through college before I went to law school. And I use stuff from that every single day. It's like so funny because I have this girlfriend in college who I used to bring her along and like we'd be bud girls together. And like now we put on our bivouac gear and go out and like talk to people and tell them about bivouac. And I always joke like they're like, why are these bivouac girls so old? You know, (laughs) (laughs) but like um, it's very weird how things have come full circle it's very weird that I find myself in this space um but it makes sense in you know and people are always like in the restaurant and they're like oh you seem like such a natural and I'm like maybe because my parents believed in child labor and I've been forced to do this (laughs) since I was born but um you know like I always tell my parents free will is an illusion (laughs) because (laughs) I did everything I could possibly do not to be in this situation. And here I am. But um, that said, I'm embracing my adventure. Uh, I believe in the product. I believe in the brand. And I think that um, I'm going to stick with it for the foreseeable future. Um, I think that we have rapid growth on the horizon. I see... um, some some things we did when we were creating the brand was like set out our target market and like who our consumers are. And a few weeks ago, I was we were in bivouac and a group of people came in and they were like, kind of looked hipstery, and they were in like beanies and they came up in this cool car and they had like carabiner um, uh, keychains and they were climbers for Mesa Rim and. I looked at them and I was like, the they look like a bivouac ad. Like they look like the people who I created this brand for. And I went over and talked to them. And as I walked up, I saw a guy that one of the guys had a lantern tattoo on the back of his arm. And we have a lantern in our logo. <laughs> and I was like, I created you in a computer. <laughs> and I literally did. Like I sat down and was like, who is our target consumer? And I built this guy. And then he walked in the door. And he's like, oh, yeah, I love your brand. I love your ciders. And I was like, we're doing something right. right? Yeah. If we said this is who we're speaking to and then that person walked in the door and said, you speak to me. I was like, we're doing something right. So um, for me, I'm not sure what the exact end goal is. I know it's growth and I know it's like keep staying the course and speaking to the people we're speaking to. Um, This is sort of a, a secret but I'll say it here. Yeah, please. I <laughs> um, like breaking news. I really, I really, really, really want to make wine. Um, I don't know if we'll ever do it, but that's something that I really want to do because I love rosé <laughs> and there I really want to make some rosé. Um, so I, I do see some like potential brand extensions. I also think that like our brand is more than just cider. I think it's a lifestyle. I think it's, you know, possible apparel. I think there's a lot, there's a lot more to it. Um, and so, you know, COVID, we didn't really talk about that, but that really put a, a cramp or, or a, uh, threw a wrench in the plans a little bit. Um, that said, I think it's allowed us to tweak some things as you were talking about earlier. I think it's allowed us to make some adjustment adjustments and clean up some things. 
Um, and our, our product, our canned product grew like 300 to 400% in the last four months. Um, and the brand has been growing month over month, even though we've been in the middle of the shutdown. And so, um, for me, I think the, the future, especially when things start to open back up, when there's a vaccine, I, I just, I think the future is, is wide open. Um, and I look forward to expanding throughout Southern California. There's not another craft cider brand in Southern California of, in my opinion, our same like brand growth potential. Um, so I think that there's just, you know, exciting stuff, whether I'll open another restaurant, I don't know right now I'd say definitely not. Um, but of course I'm, I have that curse where people say like, Hey, you know, we want you to do this thing. And I go, okay. And then I think, why did I do that? But, um, you know, I kind of futures wide open. Yeah, no, that that's good. I have a couple offers for you. First of all, when you want a brand ambassador for Bivouac, um, and you're looking in that professional space, like handsome guy, married with kids, bald head, <laughs> effective, um, following. Okay. I know one. Okay. Perfect. Um, Great. I'd happily do it. I'll okay. wear your shirts. I like the lanterns. Well, I there love you the go. Cider. I can probably find you a shirt. I don't even know of another, another cider company around, and that's not bullshitting. Yeah. I, I just don't. And I think you, it started in your mind, and now it's dominating the space here and then expanding out. And it, I'm excited for the project. Obviously, the grass is always greener. I can still see every time we talk, it's it's law comes into the conversation, right? right? And it's you can see the passion there. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, if you told me I was never going to practice law again, I would be depressed by that because I am I'm a lawyer in my soul, and I'm very inspired by the law. I really um, I I love lawyers. I love talking about the law. Mm -hmm. Like my friends call me and they're working on some like employment discrimination or like just completely random stuff. And I'm like, Ooh, this is exciting. You know, or reading like a Supreme court case or something. And certainly in the space that I'm working in now, like nobody's into that. Um, so it, I would be very sad if I never did anything with the law again, but like if that was coming to work for you part time and, you know, doing a trial once in a while, I think that would certainly satisfy, um, my, my soul. You know, I had talked to one guy as I was heading out of the U.S. Attorney's Office um, who does federal death penalty work. And I was like, I think I could do that. Um, yeah. You know, I think that I, on the defense side. Um, I don't know. I don't have strong opinions about prosecutor defense. I felt uniquely qualified and, and really um, good about being a prosecutor for all the reasons that we talked about. Um, but I think federal death penalty law was like, that is something that I could w be passionate about and work on and whatever. So if that, if that opportunity presented itself again someday, I think I would definitely be attracted to that. Um, but also if I, you know, sell the company for a hundred million dollars and retire to Tulum, I'd be okay with that too. Yeah. Me, <laughs> me too. Yeah, sky's the limit. Like yeah. if you can pivot and adjust during the pandemic, um, like I said, we were talking before we started rolling here, like th that's a true testament and like having a product that you believe in and people believing in it and taking control of what you control to right. pivot, cutting yeah. the fat, running a leaner, more effective operation so that when the on-premise opens up, the restaurants open up, the other bars that carry your product open up, 
that's that's all excess and yep. you know you're you're making it now and and growing every month that's just going to be the the x factor i hope that is true i really do i mean and that's that's exactly how i felt you know is like get it straight now and then we'll be in good shape so that that's what i hope and if you have any people listening that are investors they can give me a call too <laughs> we can talk i can always talk to you okay. about investors because i do know people that have money and like products they can believe in Wonderful. and they can show off to their friends and cheers with yeah <laughs> always it's Perfect. always nice it's hard to do that with like certificates but with right. cans um the other option i have for you is if you're going to do like a menu revamp and you need some tasting okay i know i can recruit myself and jeremy to be guinea pig tasters Taste as well testers. yeah got it um but no, I, I think it's good. It's is there anything we missed? Because I don't want to cut you short. I mean, we we covered a lot of stuff. We sure did. It was a great conversation. I get wrapped in it, and I really thank you for your time. Um, everybody, look, there's so many reasons I brought Laura on, and we didn't touch on all of them today. But you see, an intelligent, strong, passionate female business owner adapting in the middle of a pandemic embracing her adventure and it didn't happen by chance she didn't happen to see oh one day i'm going to wake up and have an opportunity to get in the food and beverage industry which i ran from because <laughs> i didn't want to be a third generation restaurateur entrepreneur in san diego but that opportunity came she had a skill set had an open mind about it and more importantly she set goals and she put thought into a product that she believed in and she didn't come to market with a half-assed product she got that right and then she had a blueprint for her market and the ideal consumer to connect with and when you take control with your mind and you plan it out and you put pen to paper and you set goals and you work hard that's the other part you work hard very hard very I mean, hard that's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's an understatement yeah. and when you have something you believe in that's authentic, that you put your name on, anything can happen. Embrace your adventure. Never settle. Thank you for coming on. Embrace your adventure. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for having me.